Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring you a presentation by Frog Moody. At a meeting of the Fisherton Historical Society, Mr Moody is an author, historian and composer who has been a central figure in several organisations such as the Whitechapel Society, Casebook Classic Crime, Time Zone Publishing and Tours and the Festival of Salisbury History. The talk he gave on this evening was entitled Jack the Ripper, A Concise History. So let's go inside the Duke of York in Salisbury for Mr Frog Moody. So tonight I would like to give a concise history of Jack the Ripper case and also some interesting local connections. Now I know what you're thinking, there can't possibly be any local connections to the Jack the Ripper case. But, I think I'm going to surprise a few here tonight. Where's the thing? Oh, here it is. Okay, so let us now return to the London of 1888. The London of Queen Victoria. London, the jewel and the crown of her great British Empire. But there was another side to the London of Queen Victoria. A place where it was overcrowded. A huge population lived in hovels and streets stank of filth, and the only way to earn a living for many was by criminal means, and for many women that meant prostitution. Yes, Whitechapel in the East End was a festering sore on the face of Victorian London in the late 19th century. Okay, now, looking at this first slide, you can see on the left-hand side uh, you know, a, few, a few of the back streets of London, but the top right, this is... Uh, Actually true, uh, people in lodging houses would sleep in these boxes, they're almost like coffins. Uh, that was luxury compared to the bottom right, where for about half a penny, you just had a rope, just a rope that you actually slung yourself over, and that was you for the night. This is absolutely perfectly true. Was it any wonder that drunkenness was a great relief from this miserable life? Jim was a friend to many of these people, brought to give a blessed oblivion. A favourite saying in the East End was, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence. And as if these poor people weren't suffering enough, for three months in 1888, fear and panic stalked the streets of London's East End. During these months, five women were murdered, four of them horribly mutilated, by a man who became known as Jack the Ripper. It is now generally accepted that there were five Ripper victims, and I would like to start by giving an overview of these poor women. The first was Marianne Nichols, a 42-year-old prostitute married but separated from her husband. Here's another shot of the London Z <coughs> Just before you go on to the prostitutes, um, me and Ruby were up there on Saturday on this street, and you wouldn't believe how congested it was, but when you see this picture, I mean, there's not enough room to move. One of the last remaining um, landmarks in the Jack Ripper case, because most of them have been uh, yeah, demolished over the years, but one of the last remaining ones is this place here. This is the Ten Bells, and I walked past it and looked in the window. It's virtually unchanged. The bar's in a different place, but this was where the last victim, Mary Kelly, left on the night she died, but we'll come on to that later. So this is Marianne Nichols. Now, when I was putting this together, I decided not to use 
pictures of the actual victims. I mean, that would have been, um, you know, probably most people here may have seen them. They're not very nice. Uh, for those of you that haven't seen them, you know, you have to be a fish arder of the Ripper case, I think. They're pretty gruesome. So what I thought I'd do is um, just represent all the victims by the illustrated London news at the time. But you can see the first victim and all the coroner, all the people around them. Uh, they didn't quite know what was going on on this first murder, but as the series continued, well, we'll come to that in a minute. So, her body was found in the early hours of Friday the 31st of August, 1888, by a man called Charles Lechmere. Uh, before I go on, uh, Lechmere has become uh, a new suspect in the case. Uh, if anybody wants to know more about Charles Lechmere, Ruby here, that's your suspect, isn't it, Ruby? One of your suspects. So she knows a lot more about it. Charles Lechmere was walking to work through Bucks Row, now called Durwood Street. The woman was lying in a gateway on her back with her skirt around her waist. Another man called Robert Paul arrived at the scene and decided to call a policeman, who, with the aid of his bullseye lantern, could see that the woman's throat had been cut. Back at the mortuary, it was discovered that severe mutilations had been made to the abdomen, which had been ripped open, the wound inflicted with a knife in a very violent manner. The police had very little to go on. It seemed like the woman had been murdered where she was found. Little noise had been made by the killer or the victim. Witnesses living close by heard no cries or shouts. There was no obvious motive or none that was understood at the time. And the clean, killer got clean away. Okay, so now we come on to the second victim. In the early hours of Saturday the 8th of September, less than half a mile away from Bucks Row, another, another body was found. The mutilated remains of 45-year-old Annie Chapman were found at around 6am in the backyard of 29 Hanbury Street. <clears throat> the woman's throat had been so savagely cut that it was almost hanging off her body. <clears throat> she had been disemboweled and part of her intestines lay across her right shoulder. Dr. George Baxter Phillips, a police surgeon with over 20 years experience, was called to the house and his evidence regarding Annie Chapman's injuries were published in The Lancet. He described two cuts in the throat and detailed the, the abdomen wounds, which he thought had been inflicted with a long, thin knife. He offered his opinion that the work had been carried out by someone with anatomical knowledge. At the inquest, it was left to Coroner Wayne E. Baxter to make the dramatic announcement that the uterus was missing from Chapman's body. He too believed that the injuries had been inflicted by a person exercising anatomical skills. And here we can see a few of the disfigurations to the face of Chapman. She was found just down here on this step here. Here's a chap here, William Thick. we'll come on onto him a bit later, but he's quite important in the case. Moving on, on Sunday the 30th of September, the Ripper struck again in a terrible night of killing known as the Double Event. About 1am, the club steward returned to the International Workers' Education Club premises at 40 Burner Street to find a still warm body of a woman lying in the yard. Dr. Frederick Blackwell, a local physician, 
who examined the body at 1.25am, estimated that the woman had not been dead more than 30 minutes. The woman was a 45-year-old prostitute, later named as Elizabeth Stride. Her throat had been cut, but there was no mutilations. I'll come back to this particular murder later, but let's move on to the second victim that night. Can you all hear me okay? At 1.45am, less than a mile away from where Elizabeth Stride was found, P.C. Watkins found a woman's body lying in Mitre Square. 43-year-old prostitute Catherine Eddowes had, according to the PC, PC, been ripped up like a pig in the market. Her throat was cut, her face had been disfigured with the knife cuts, and there was extensive mutilations to the abdomen. Again, doctors estimated that the murderer had not long departed. The woman had been dead for about 30 minutes when her body was discovered. PC Watkins said that he had passed through the square patrolling his beat 15 minutes earlier and he had seen nothing unusual on that occasion. Dr Phillips, who assisted at the post-mortem, gave it as his opinion that the woman had been forced to the ground and then had her throat cut. He based this opinion on the presence of bruises on the shoulder and the appearance of the blood which had flowed from the wound. The killing of Catherine Eddowes immediately fell into a different category than previous murders, not only because of the ferocity of the attack, but also because her death had occurred in the City of London. This placed the murder investigation in the hands of the City Police and not under the management of the Metropolitan Force. So Henry Smith, Acton City Police Commissioner, visited the murder scene at Mitre Square and soon learnt that the victim had earlier that evening been put into a, uh, into a cell at Bishopsgate Police Station for drunkenness. She was discharged at about 12.30am and 35 minutes later she was dead. The murder victim was found lying on her back with a throat cut. Her skirt had been pushed up around her waist re revealing extensive wounds to the abdomen. Part of the intestines had been drawn across the shoulder and there was numerous knife cuts on the face including a deep gash across the right cheek and nose. Uh, now, there was a, a drawing done at the time, and it shows just how extensive the wounds to the face were. Okay, so this is uh, the poor woman's... As you can see, he's, he's actually um, removed the nose. There's a horrible gash on the left-hand side. Part of the ears are missing. Uh, he's taken the time and trouble to inflict like V marks just under the eyes and he's actually slit the eye eyebrows as well. Um, this is quite remarkable because um, where that body was found in Mitre Square was probably in the darkest corner. Uh, there was no uh, gaslight or if there was a gaslight nearby it didn't throw very much light out at all because the gaslights in those days literally lit up directly underneath the post itself. So that's why the prostitutes at the time used to move from lamppost to lamppost, plying their trade. Uh, so how he managed to, to, to actually inflict all these deliberate marks is quite fascinating. It's one of the mysteries of the case. Shortly after Edo's body was taken to the mortuary, a piece of apron, which had been cut from the garment she was wearing, was found by a policeman in Gorston Street, about 10 minutes walk from Mitre Square. It was bloodstained, evidently having been used to wipe the knife, and it lay in a passage leading to some flats. 
also found was a chalk message which read, the Jews are not the men that will be, bl that will be blamed for nothing. This discovery gave rise to a decision which had been, has been a source of controversy ever since. On hearing the content of the message, Sir Charles Warren, Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, hurried to Golston Street, which unlike Mitre Square was in his jurisdiction, fearing a public reaction against the Jews, Warren ordered the message to be erased. Senior colleagues protested about destroying evidence, they were overruled and the words were erased before they could be, even be photographed. Therefore not, even, therefore, not only was an important clue lost forever, but also the precise wording and spelling of the message, which have been disputed ever since. The inquest on Eddowes brought out some further revelations, this time concerning a missing kidney. Dr Gordon Brown, surgeon of the City Police London, London Police, was one of four doctors involved in the post-mortem examination of Edo's body. He went on record as saying that the mutilations could only have been carried out by a person who had some anatomical knowledge and he referred to the kidney which had been taken from the body. More about the missing kidney later. Dr. Sierra and Saunders agreed in principle with Brown but were less enthusiastic about the idea of anatomical knowledge on the part of the murderer. All the doctors agreed that Eddowes had a throat cut while lying on her back and there was little evidence of a struggle. And, and uh, the city police proved no more successful in their, in their search for Jack the Ripper than their metropolitan colleagues. But before we go on to the fifth and what many believe final victim, I would like to return to Elizabeth Stride, the first victim of the infamous double event. Some Ripper experts do not consider Stride to be a victim of Jack the Ripper, as she only had a throat cut and no other mutilations. Many say the reason for this was because the killer was disturbed before he could carry out any further mutilations. Then, 30 minutes later, he found another victim for his bloodlust. We'll never know for sure, but there's another twist with a supernatural element attached. In the wake of Elizabeth Stry's murder on the 30th of September, the police were contacted by a lady named Mrs. Mary, Mrs. Mary Malcolm, who was convinced that the murdered woman was in fact her sister, Elizabeth Watts of Bath. She viewed the body of Elizabeth Stride twice at the mortuary, but failed to identify the deceased woman. However, on the third visit, she identified the body as being that of her sister, not by the face, but by pointing out a black mark on her leg. She said that this was caused by a bite from an adder obtained whilst they were rolling down a hillside as children. Then Mary Malcolm appeared at the inquest and told a tale which became a sensation in the newspapers. The East London Advertiser called it the supernatural element into the saga of the Whitechapel murders. To a hushed court, Mary Malcolm relayed how she had been lying in bed around 1.20am on the previous Sunday when suddenly she felt a pressure on her breast and heard three distinct kisses in the air. She sensed that something had happened to her sister, Elizabeth Watts, and after hearing about the Burner Street murder, she contacted the police with her fears. She then went on to give her sister a character assassination, saying that she was often the worst of drink, a scrounger, 
and have been in prison and possibly a prostitute, etc., etc. Even though the police and the coroner made it quite clear that they didn't believe a single word of it, <coughs> and they were certain that the dead woman was, most certainly wasn't her sister, Mrs. Mary Malcolm stuck to her story until her sister actually hobbled into the court very much alive <laughs> and denounced her for giving her such a bad character. It is a shame my sister should say such sad things about me, she told the court, and that innocent should suffer for the guilty. Is Mrs. Malcolm here? the coroner asked, no doubt wishing to demand an explanation. No, sir, came the reply from Inspector Edmund Berry. But my researches show that some of the accusations Mary Malcolm gave about her sister's character were actually true. And Elizabeth Watts had indeed had a troubled soul, she was a troubled soul, which eventually led her here to Salisbury. So this is 1875, August the 28th, from the Bath Argus. Of unsound mind, Elizabeth Watts was charged on remand last week with being drunk and disorderly in Bath Guildhall and with attempting to commit suicide in the police cell. It will be remembered that the prisoner on Monday week made an incoherent application to the justice and it being evident that she had been drinking, she was ordered out of the hall. Upon PC Noble requesting her to leave, she became very violent, used bad language and tried to bite and scratch the officer. She refused to go away and was apprehended. With considerable difficulty, she was conveyed to the police cells. When there, she behaved in a most violent manner, hammering on the cell door with her boots, screamed, swore, and attempted to strangle herself with her stockings. The bench last week remanded the prisoner in order that her state of mind be ascertained by the jail surgeon. Dr. Carter today deposed that she had been, he had examined the prisoner. He found her incoherent and rambling in her conversation. She has several hundred pounds somewhere, but she did not know where it was. She was, in his opinion, dangerous to herself. She might get better under treatment, and it would be uh, a matter of time. Her condition was to be ascribed to the life in which she led. The bench ordered the prisoner to be sent to Fisherton House Lunatic Asylum, Salisbury. So, we got like a, someone who was actually involved in the Jack Ripper case, incarcerated in the Old Man Hospital, which is... In itself is quite remarkable, I think. So here is the old manor hospital, as we know it. And here is Elizabeth Watts, the sad woman in the cell. Uh, she was incarcerated in Fisherton House, House for almost one year. <clears throat> and the asylum has other links with the Ripper case, as we will see. So she was there for a year, uh, almost a year, one month out from being a year. So, now we go on to the last victim of Jack the Ripper. Mary Jane Kelly discovered on the 9th of November, 1888. At 10.45am, a Dorset Street lodging house keeper sent his assistant to 13 Mellis Court to collect the rent, which was in arrears. Receiving no answer to his knock at the door, the messenger looked through the interior through of the one room letting by putting his hand through the broken window and drawing the curtain aside. He saw a blood-soaked shambles. Lying on the bed in the small room 
was a woman's body. The throat had been cut and her abdomen ripped open. Pieces of flesh had been stripped from the body and various organs lay on the bed and also on the bedside table. So here we can see the youngest of the Ripper victims, the five. This was her room and this was the window that the man put his hand through and drew aside the curtain and saw the horrible discovery. Uh, yeah. Why did it say the seventh victim? It says the seventh victim because there were murders before uh, the the actual five, um, but most of the Ripper ex experts believe that in the series of Jack the Rippers there was only uh, there are five five victims and five victims only. Um, after Mary Kelly, there were other murders um, attributed to Jack the Ripper, but uh, because of the uh, mutilations etc., not accepted as being Ripper victims. So, the police, after some time, managed to get into the room, and um, if you look at the actual real pictures of Kelly on the bed, it's pretty disturbing. I remember the first time that I ever saw them, uh, you know, it, it takes your breath away. They're not good, I can assure you. No, nobody is good to see a murdered woman, but these are particularly gruesome. It's probably the worst crime scene photographs that I've ever seen in my life. And um, there was only one known photograph of Stride in a room, dead. Um, but someone, a police officer, took, went to view the files, files at Scotland Yard, and stole some of the uh, Scotland Yard files, including one of the pictures of Kelly that we didn't know about. And when this particular police officer died, he used them for illustrations to his talk. But when he died, his wife sent them back. And so we had a new picture of the room uh, that Kelly was dead in, but from a, taken from a different angle almost taken from the angle that the camera is actually showing here. Dr. Phillips examined the brutally abused remains of a young woman named Mary Kelly, but he could do little more than order her body and its scattered parts to be taken to the mortuary. In the midst of the carnage, lying in a neat pile on a chair were the dead woman's clothes, strongly indicating that there was no struggle. The state of the fire grate in the little room suggested a fierce fire had been burnt and quite and quite recently as well. Partly built burnt pieces of female clothing were found in the still warm ashes. Now um, when you see the close proximity to all the five river victims they they're all murdered close together so I've got a map here just to indicate. So the, these five were actually murdered you know, literally streets apart. You know, it, it's until you go to the East End, or as Chris Asher calls it, the mean streets. Until you go there and see the, you know, how close these streets are together, you you, you have to go there and, and see it for yourself because it's quite remarkable. Um, that's led a lot of people, uh, profilers in particular, to say that the murderer actually lived somewhere in the middle, and about here. But of course, yeah, we can't prove that. That's just what the profile says. This fifth, uh, this fifth murder sent the East End into panic, and the flames of fear were fueled by newspaper correspondence columns from letter writers offering every conceivable theory and suggestion, like Dr. Forbes Winslow and Remember His Lane for Later, who suggested this advertisement for the newspaper, and he actually wrote this. A gentleman 
who is strongly opposed to the presence of fallen women on the streets of London, would delight, like to cooperate with someone with a view to their suppression. A great idea. Draw out the Ripper to meet his fans. That's a great idea. The police were offered thousands of ideas from armed armchair rippers, <coughs> detectives, like <coughs> policemen should disguise themselves as prostitutes to trap the killer. They should glue pieces of rubber tire to their heavy hobnail boots so as the killer wouldn't hear them coming. And the use of body armour and protective metal collars was strongly recommended. So they actually re recommended that the prostitutes wore these metal collars so if the ripper tried to cut their throat, they wouldn't be able to do it. It was unbelievable. But not all of the, all of the correspondence could be taken lightly. A few letters are worthy of serious consideration. The first was posted on the 27th of September 1888 and sent to London's Central News Agency. It has the distinction of being the first to use the name Jack the Ripper. Initially, the letter was considered to be a hoax, but when the body of Catherine Edders was found with one of her earlobes uh, cut on the 30th of September, the writers promised to clip the lady's ears off attracted attention. <coughs> So this was the first uh, time that we'd seen the name Jack the Ripper. I mean, it's you know for, for the press it was a it was a name from from heaven. You know you can't really get a better name than Jack the Ripper. It's just absolutely perfect. And an industry has sprung up, you know, using this name ever since. And letters, films, the whole works. The letter said, "Dear boss." I keep on hearing that the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I have laughed when they looked so clever and talked about being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I am down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them until I get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no, no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue, and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope, ha ha. The next job I do, I will clip the lady's ears off and send them to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work and give it out straight. My knife is nice and sharp. I want to get to work right away I get a chance. Good luck, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. And then he put, don't mind me giving the trade name. Okay, so the second communication was a postcard sent on October the 1st, the day after the double event murder of Strider Meadows. This was also sent to the Central News Agency. Uh, the reference in the card to a double event this time has been thought to carry sinister overtones. So you can't actually read it, but I've got a transcript here. This is known uh, as the Saucy Jackie postcard, and it reads, I was not codding, dear old boss, when I gave you the tip. You'll hear about Saucy Jack's work tomorrow. Double event this time. Number one squealed a bit. Couldn't furnish her straight off. Had not got time to get the ears for the police. Thank you for keeping the last letter back till I get to work again. Jack the Ripper. Then... On the 16th of October, George Lusk, who was head of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, was the recipient of a letter enclosed 
in a small parcel. This note was addressed from hell and accompanied part of a human kidney. This letter reads, from hell. Mr. Lusk, sir, I sent you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you, tell a piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer, signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. <coughs> In view of the fact that a kidney had been removed from Catherine Eddowes' body, there was an irresistible urge to conclude that it, was now, that it had now turned up. The kidney was examined by Dr. Thomas Openshaw, the pathological creator of the London Hospital Museum. He said that it was a ginning kidney from a woman of about 45 and had been removed within the last three weeks. But many ripologists have since challenged these opinions. The authenticity of the ripper letters have been strongly... debated over the years. However, many commentators still regard the kidney letter as the one most likely to be genuine. I personally do as well. I personally think that um, that is the, I don't know about the other two, but the, the kidney uh, letter, the Lusk letter, just for me, particularly as it's got the piece of kidney with it, just seems to be the one that, uh, if any, I mean, if you go to the, um, the PRO, the Public Record Office up in London, you can see all the letters. In fact, there's a book out called Letters from Hell, and it documents just about all the letters ever received um, from cranks and all sorts. It's an unbelievable array of letters there. Um, yeah, I mean, you can get all these books in Waterstones and all the rest of it. Uh, they make fascinating reading. Well, yeah. Isn't the handwriting on that letter quite different than the handwriting on the previous Yeah, yeah. The handwriting is different. Actually... Uh, this letter was, because it was thought to be the one that was genuine, was actually analysed by a handwriting expert who said that um, because of the actual downstrokes, like daggers and the way it was actually composed, uh, it was, uh, in her opinion, from someone who was uh, statistic, uh, you know, obviously you can't tell the age of the person through the, the handwriting, but uh, she, she read all the letters and said this is the one that uh, shows statistic tendencies. Her opinion. So, but that's not why I think that it's uh, the genuine one. I think it is because I think that the genuine was the one taken from the actual body. Um, but of course, you know, as time goes on, the kidney and everything's disappeared. In fact, this letter has disappeared. This is one of the things that got stolen from the Home Office files. But this is just a photograph of it. And that's the only reason we got it. How am I doing for time? <clears throat> okay, come a bit further and then we'll have a break. So, this is William Thick, real name. Uh, I would like to now move on to two of the main players in the hunt for Jack the Ripper. And both have local connections. First, we have William Thick, who was born at Bower Chalk on November the 20th, 1845. Uh, his first home was at Misselfall Green, Church Street, Bower Chalk, and he attended the small parish church for a fee of one penny a week. On leaving school at 14, William gained employment as a carter on the bleak and remote West, West Chase Farm. And around the mid-1860s, farming in Bower Chalk was steadily declining, 
as this newspaper uh, report indicates. The chase labourers used to be employed by the Woodward of Lord Pembroke, six months a year, and to which now has dwindled down to about two months a year, and to which may be partly be attributed to their present distress. The failure of the potato crop will add very considerably to the suffering of these poor labourers, who, we understand, have petitioned the Right Honourable Sidney Herbert for his interference, so as to keep them from having their houses broken up and becoming an inmate of the Union. This is possibly the reason why William Thicke escaped the harsh employment of rural Wiltshire and travelled to London in 1868, aged 23. On the 16th of March 1868, William Thicke joined the Metropolitan Police at Great Scotland Yard. Straight away, he was appointed to H Division Whitechapel. So we can only imagine what was going through the young constable's mind on his arrival in Whitechapel from his rural Browerchalk. Home now was a dark huddle of sleazy lodging houses, a cauldron of squalor and misery. This was indeed a land of beer and blood. Over the next four years, William would become familiar with the warren of narrow, gaslit alleyways and courtyards that merged with the drab, mean streets. He would also gain an understanding of the low life of criminals and prostitutes who made up this despairing landscape. Just to show you how bad it was in Whitechapel at the time. This was the sort of hovels that the people were living in. This is actually a Whitechapel slum from 1888, but these were all over Whitechapel. There is one report actually that says that um, in one room there was a family of seven uh, and they actually had a pig in the room with them. Yeah. Um, they also had goats in the room with them as well. There was a horrific report of a family living in one room and one of the children was actually dead. Uh, it, it really is. I mean, you, you know, you, you can't imagine how bad this area was. It really was, the, you know. William Thicke's first major involvement in the Whitechapel murders was during the Anna Chapman inquiry. Thicke examined the body in the mortuary and gave a description of it to Sergeant Edmund Barry. William also took an active part in visiting the common lodging houses around the vicinity of Hanbury Street. How would you like to meet him on a dark night? <laughs> I think the actual newspaper artist was doing him a favour, apparently he looked worse than this. But look at the ghastly murder capture of Leather Apron. Two days later, on September the 10th, Sergeant Thicke made the arrest of the notorious Jack John Pizer, alias Leather Apron. The action of Thicke arresting Pizer is hardly surprising when you consider the two of them lived together, uh, sorry, lived just streets apart and had known each other for years. Indeed, indeed with feeling running so high against Leather Apron, <clears throat> most of London's police were on the lookout for him, but it was Thicke who knew exactly where to find him. <clears throat> and he also knew him locally as Leather Apron. As it turned out, the police eventually decided there was no case against Leather Apron, and they, and they released him two days uh, in custody in Lean Street Police Station. The following day, Pizer appeared at the inquest of Annie Chapman. This was seen as his chance to clear his name in public. After giving evidence, Pizer and Thick chatted together until the adjournment. Sergeant Thick then escorted Pizer home. Thick's a really interesting character in this case. Uh, Thick remained active all through the murders, 
during which a letter was sent to the Home Office from H.T. Hazelwood of Tottenham. It stated, I have very good grounds to believe that the person who has committed the Whitechapel murders is a member of the police force. Another letter soon followed, and this time the author named the member of the police force that he thought responsible, William Thick. He is actually the only policeman to ever be accused of the murders. Next, we're going to go on to Inspector Aberline. This is not Inspector Aberline, not the real Inspector Aberline. Actually, uh, there is no known photograph of uh, Inspector Aberline. There are line drawings in the local papers, but no one's managed to trace an actual photograph. It remains the holy grail of ripologists to try and find a photograph. I've looked, can't find one. If anybody finds one, get in contact. Without doubt, Inspector Frederick George Aberline has become the most famous police official in the Ripper case. Indeed, Michael Caine and Johnny Depp have both played the part of the great detective. Caine played him as a whiskey-swilling drunk in the 1988 TV miniseries, and Depp, not to be outdone, played him, played him in the film From Hell as an opium-smoking, absent-drinking copper with a heart of gold and a crash on the last victim, Mary Kelly. Mm -hmm. Both couldn't be further from the truth, and Abilene was actually teetotal who enjoyed gardening. <laughs> So this is uh, one of the only known pictures of Abilene. I think that it's pretty close to what he really looked like. There are pictures of H Division that show all the police officers all lined up for a group shot. And someone has actually suggested that Abilene is amongst that group. Uh, the hunt goes on. There are other line drawings, but this one is probably the, one, the most famous. It is said that Abilene had a more intimate knowledge of the East End and its underworld than any other police contemporary. And Walter Jew, who investigated the Teddy Haskell case here in Salisbury, said that Abilene's knowledge of the district made him one of the most important members of the Whitechapel murders case team. If only Frederick Abilene had been born a few years earlier, we would be here tonight talking about him as a Salisbury man. Honestly, Frederick Abilene's father, Edward, at one time lived at Holy Road in Southampton, where it looks like he was born. He married Hannah Chin of St. Martin's, Salisbury. And in 1834, they were living in Brown Street, Salisbury, where a daughter, Elizabeth, was born in 1834. She was baptised on the 30th of April, 1834, at St. Martin's Church, Salisbury. Another daughter, Emily, was born on the 16th of February, 1836, in Brown Street, Salisbury, she was baptised on the 13th of March, 1836, at St. Martin's Church, Salisbury. Later that year, 1836, the small family moved to Blandford, where Frederick Abilene was born in 1843. This piece in the Salisbury Journal gives us the information we need about Fred's father working in Salisbury and leaving for Blandford. And this is the Salisbury Journal, Monday the 7th of March, 1836. Blandford. James Jennings, saddler, harness maker, etc., returns his sincere thanks to his friends and the public for the favours and support he has received in the above business and begs to recommend to them that his successor, Mr. Edward Abilene of Salisbury, who has had many years' practice in some of the principal shops in the land and has for some years been the principal workman for Mr. Richardson, 
of Salisbury, a person well known to be first respectability and experience in the trade. <coughs> Edward Abilene, having succeeded to the above business, earnestly solicits the friends of his predecessor and the public generally, which will be his endeavour to meet with the strictest attention the manufacture of every in the trade, combined with punctuality, dispatch and moderate charges. NB, the greatest care will be taken in the measuring and fitting of horses. So, in 1904, Abilene retired to Methuen Road, Bournemouth, later moving to nearby Holdenhurst Road in 1911, where he died in 1929. Nigel Morland, in the evening news of the 28th of June 1976, record a meeting with Abilene, saying he distinctly remembered Abilene's words relating to the Ripper, which were, I give him my word, my mouth is permanently closed about it. I know my superiors know certain facts. He continued that the Ripper wasn't a butcher, yid, or foreign skipper. You'd have to look for him, not at the bottom of London society, but a long way up. Nigel Morland was the founder editor of The Criminologist, which was the first published Dr. Thomas Stoll's theory of Prince Albert Victor being Jack the Ripper. Now, before I go on, I'm going to have a quick break, I think, so I need a drink, and then we're going to go into some conspiracy theories, and we're going to go into more detail about the old manor hospital possibly housing Jack the Ripper. Thank you very much. Okay, so I'm going to kick on now with the second half, and I'm just going to reiterate a bit so we can pick up the thread. So I'll, I'll just talk a bit about what I've already talked about, so we can so you know what I'm talking about when I continue. So in 1904, Abilene retired to Methuen Road, Bournemouth, later moving to Holdenhurst Road in 1911, where he died in 1929. Nigel Morland, in the evening news of the 28th of June 1976, recalled a meeting Abilene in the same he distinctly remembered Abilene's words relating to the Ripper, which were, I've given my word to keep my mouth permanently closed about it. I know, and my superiors know, certain facts. He continued that the Ripper wasn't a butcher, yid, or foreign skipper. You'd have to look for him, not at the bottom of London society, but a long way up. Nigel Morland was the founder editor of the Criminologist magazine, which first published Dr. Thomas Stowell's theory of Prince Albert Victor being Jack the Ripper. This 1970 article by Stowell, entitled Jack the Ripper, A Solution, caused a worldwide sensation. Although referring to the alleged culprit as S, Stowell planted enough evidence in the reader's mind to leave little doubt that the prince was also Eddie, and that was his man. So this is uh, Thomas Stoll on the left-hand side, and this is everybody's favourite suspect, because we always like raw conspiracies, don't we? <laughs> Prince Albert Victor, also known to his friends and colleagues as Eddie, uh, he was also nicknamed, rather unkindly, I think, Collar and Cuffs, because his neck was almost swan-like, and he had unusually long wrists, so he used to wear his cuffs to cover up the unusualness of his wrists. Uh, that particular army uniform was specially made for him. It was all specially tailored. It wasn't the baggy one that you normally get in the army. And he was quite a vain man. So, 
According to Stoll's account, Eddie was suffering from syphilis, which he had contracted whilst on tour in the West Indies. This disease eventually drove the prince insane and led him to launch the Autumn of Terror in Whitechapel in 1888. Although the royal family knew that Eddie was the Ripper from at least the second murder, they did not act until the fourth when Sir William Gull informed Prince Edward that his son was dying of the syphilitic infection. The story went that Eddie was then locked away in a private mental asylum, but managed to escape and murder Mary Jane Kelly. He was then recaptured and later died of softening of the brain in a private mental hospital said to be Sandringham, but believed by many to be Fisherton Asylum. It was thought that Fisherton Asylum was chosen because of the close ties between the royal family and the asylum owner, William Corbin Finch. The high reputation of the hospital had for treating private gentlemen patients and the favourable distance between London and Salisbury. The official line was that Prince Eddie, then the second in the line to the throne, died suddenly in the influenza epidemic of 1891-92. However, rumours have long abounded that he was incarcerated in Fishton Asylum after being certified insane by the royal physician William Gull. And William Gull himself is a strong contender as being Jack the Ripper. Uh, it's a long, detailed, very, very detailed uh, account because he was a Freemason and it's all wrapped up. <coughs> this, I think, is a previously unpublished picture of the Old Manor Hospital, or Fisherton House as it was, uh, taken from just in front of the chapel area. You can see the big green in front at the time was the tennis court and the the tall building you don't often see it like that because it right on the top of that turret was a like a big water tank but there it is as it was originally was and that was the gentleman's ward at the time so this is previously been unseen and when i was gardening there myself um became head gardener in 1993 uh, a lot of the gardens were overgrown grass but um, you could actually see in the summer when the sun bleached the grass you could see the original paths in a lot of the grassed areas and I distinctly remember once I was doing some strimming and I hit something and I thought what the hell's that it looked like grey and it was you know those rope edging stones you can get they're really expensive now I hit one of those and I dug it up and I thought, that's, that's really nice then another one then another and I actually managed to trace 2,000 of these edging stones and went virtually the whole length. It, the gardens were immaculate in Victorian times, the old man and Edwardian times, the, the gardens there were absolutely immaculate. Uh, I did manage to trace a chap who did a report for the Salisbury Journal. I can't find the damn thing. It's my fault for not jotting down the date. But he visited the old manor and talked up just how great the gardeners were there and how great the, gar the gardens were. It, it's also said that the tunnel was the ladies used to walk through the beautifully manicured gardens on their way to the chapel and the men couldn't be seen with the women because it's a bit of a taboo subject for the men, men to walk, men and women to walk together so the men used to walk under the tunnel and that's why the tunnel was there that's just one of the theories frog can i jump in when you and i went down to the tunnels yeah you told me that once someone told you about a, a scratching on one of the pipes saying gonna I, you're going to come to that yeah yeah. yeah, Spence was just saying that I told him some time ago about something I'm about to talk about in a minute. So, Okay, 
there have been many stories over the years regarding Jack the Ripper being held at Fisherton Asylum. Here are a few. I'm going to relate a few now. So my father, Jack Moody, had been employed at the hospital since the early 1960s and told me that he had first been told by some of the older workers that Jack the Ripper had been incarcerated there. Of course. I mean, I said, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. like everybody would. Yeah, if someone said to you, oh, Jack the Ripper was there, you're bound to say, oh, no, the cop knows, I don't believe that for five minutes. Anyway, he was adamant that it was true. So um, I followed in my father's footsteps, as I've just said, I became the head gardener at the hospital in 1993. Now, you're not going to believe this. I said to Spence about it. I remember seeing a in the basement of Finch House an etching on a metal pipe saying, I am Jack, 1888. Now, you don't have to believe me if you don't want to, but I actually distinctly saw it. Unfortunately, in those days, you didn't have camera phones, so I couldn't take a picture of it. Um, as I say here, I realise that people won't believe this, but during the building's part demolition in 2001, sorry, in 2001, a wall linking the old Ashford and Highland Wars was found also to have names and carvings etched on the surface. Tony Howe, who was the carpenter there, worked at the old manor for 35 years and remembers the discovery. I saw this big slab of concrete with some strange carvings and I can only assume they were around a century old. The names and carvings on the slab dated back to the, ho to the hospital when the hospital was an asylum and contained the names of former patients, including Gregory, Slater and Wood, <clears throat> with the former two dated at 1899 and the latter July 1912. An eerie face stenciled into the concrete as to the intrigue of the discovery. Many patients carved their names and initials and drawings into the walls of the asylum but the building development and renovation across 200 years, many of these were lost or simply worn away. So, here's just a few of the etchings that Tony was talking about when they discovered this on the wall that was partly demolished. Now, I know for a fact that I've seen more etchings and scratchings around that hospital because one of the, um, one of the great things about being in charge of the garden department was I had the master key which let me go into any ward in the hospital because a lot of the grounds and gardens you had to actually take the lawnmower uh, through wards to get to the back garden so you know I had the master key uh, many a time I've been slapped on the back of the head by a patient walking through there who's particularly going through Highland Ward which was one of the worst wards there um, you often used to see a lot of the nurses there with black eyes it's pretty pretty heavy duty place there it really was but I mean Having said that, and I think Jane over there, who also worked at the old man, will back me up on this, it was the best place I ever worked. I mean, the, the family, it was like a family there. Uh, the atmosphere was fantastic. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, mental health's got a bit of a taboo you know, sort of thing around it, but as far as I'm concerned, I loved every minute of working there. Brilliant place. So, there are some of the names and carvings. Now, um... Will Blake, do you know Will Blake, Jane? Is she there? Yes. Will Blake? Me, personally, yeah. no. Ah. Okay, Will Blake I was... Eh? Will. <laughs> you know him? Yeah. Good, okay, so you'll be able to back me up on this. He's a, he's a trustworthy person, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Will Blake told me this story some time ago, and I recently asked him to repeat it for tonight's uh, presentation. 
So this is uh, Will Blake. I worked at the Old Man Hospital since Christmas Day 1977, initially as a nursing assistant. At that time, there were staff still working who first started working at the hospital just after World War II. I undertook registered nurse training and qualified in 1982 and worked in various capacities until 2009. My final position was managing the older adult inpatient services in the newly built Amblecroft unit. As I recall, we had several discussions about the history of the hospital. I can confirm these included rumours I had heard on several occasions from long-serving staff members, particularly early on in my time at the hospital, that the Jugger Clarence was a patient at the hospital, and this, at the time, was kept secret. I can't recall if these stories included any links between the, the Duke to the Ripper. I do recall you telling me that you had heard that the link was made. In the stories about the Duke, I had heard that his admission there was so that the general public would not find out. So, everyone loves a royal conspiracy, and Prince Eddie is the perfect royal suspect. Yes, there are alibis for the prince on the nights of most of the murders, but we all know that an alibi can be faked. Although the royal family would never do anything like that, would they? Listen to this. In 1987, it was revealed that Nerissa and Catherine Bowes-Lyon had been admitted to Earlsworth Hospital for the mentally disabled in 1941. The two women were the daughters of John Herbert Bowes-Lyon, the brother of Elizabeth Bowes-Lyon, who at the time was the British Empress. <coughs> they were therefore the first cousins of our present Queen Elizabeth, Elizabeth II. In 1963, Burke's Peerage recorded that the sisters, as having died in 1940, 1961. However, Nerissa lived until 1986, and when Earlswood was closed down in 1997, her sister Catherine was moved into a home in the community. Suggestions of a royal cover-up about the two sisters have become rife ever since, perhaps refined from the experiences of an earlier royal incarceration. Back to Prince Eddie. Maybe there was a kernel of truth in the tale. And therein lies the lure, even for the expert. If someone asks you to prove Eddie was the Ripper, simply ask them to provide a cast-iron proof that he wasn't. Shortly after publishing his theory in 1970, Thomas Storrell himself died. His son, another, Tom, another Thomas, claimed he destroyed all his father's files on Jack the Ripper investigation, which of course makes all the, all the um, story impossible to prove. In, 19, sorry, in 1872, Dr. William Corbin Finch had entertained Prince Eddie's father, Edward, Prince of Wales, at his home in Bemerton Lodge, near the asylum. And in 1978, Finch was involved, was invited, sorry, that should be 1878, Finch was invited to St. James Palace on the invitation of the Prince of Wales, as this picture shows. Okay, so this is from the Times. And you can quite clearly see, if you look down near the bottom, W. Corbin Finch. But if you look at the first doctor, there's our old friend that we mentioned earlier, Forbes Winslow. Do you remember we mentioned that he was sending letters to the police and suggestions to the police? 
Forms Winslow was writing suggestions to police on how Jack Ripper should be caught. Winslow, through his persistence and his constant projection of himself into the Ripper story, caused the police to briefly suspect him and to check his movements at the time of the Ripper murders. Winslow was an expert on matters of legal sanity and wrote The Handbook for the Attendance of the Insane. In his memoirs, he states, I have breathed the atmosphere of lunacy for a period extended over 60 years. He died on the 8th of June, 1913. By the time Edward visited Salisbury again in 1908, he was King of Great Britain and her dominions and Emperor of India. His son, the new Prince of Wales, would become King George V in 1910. But could it be the case that Edward's thoughts turned to his genuine heir when his coach passed the gates of Pitcherton House? Now what I'm going to do is have a quick look at some of the suspects in the case. So first we have Montague John Druitt. Has anybody heard of these people? Yes. <laughs> Druitt was born in 1857 as a son of a prominent local surgeon and officer of law. Druitt was a bright child and obtained a scholarship to attend Winchester Collar College in 18, at the age of 13. In school, he participated in debate. He was an opening bowler for the school cricket team. After leaving school in 1880, he joined the Inner Temple, one of the qualifying bodies to become a lawyer in England at the time, located in London. To pay for his legal training, he took a job as an assistant schoolmaster at George Valentine's boarding school in 1885. During his time, he played cricket with prominent clubs across England, and he was actually playing um, just before one of the murders, he was actually playing in Salisbury. He was dismissed from his position at school in 1888 for an unknown reason. Newspapers at the time said it was because Druitt had gotten into serious trouble. Some people have suggested that it was homosexuality between um, some of his students at the school, but that's never been proven. A month later, his body was found in the River Thames, presumed dead from suicide. Shortly before Druitt's death in 1888, the Ripper claimed his final victim, Mary Jane Kelly. Shortly after, rumours start to spread that the Ripper had drowned in the Thames. Assistant Chief Constable Sir Malvin McNaughton of the London Metropolitan Police named Druitt as a suspect in his Whitechapel murders in a private memorandum written in 1894. But Druitt's mother suffered from depression and insanity and died in an asylum in 1890. She had attempted suicide in the past. Uh, there have been lots of books written on Druitt. Um, the jury really is out on whether he was Jack the Ripper or not. Personally, I don't think he was, um, but it's like all things. If anybody's got yeah, their favourite suspect, they can always make a case out for him. The next person, up until recently, has been my favourite candidate, is Jack the Ripper. George Chapman. Born Serwan Krasowski in Poland in 1865. Little was known about his life previous back in Poland, other than at the age of 14, he apprenticed for a surgeon and attended a course in practical surgery at the Warsaw Praga Hospital. He believed that he worked as a nurse or a doctor's assistant in Warsaw until December 1886, and it is believed he moved to London around 1888. It is also known that he had a wife in Poland who raised objections when he married a young Polish girl whilst in London. Nevertheless, Chapman continued his relationship with his second wife and moved with her to the United States in 1891. There, the two of them lived in New Jersey, where once, in an argument over Chapman's cheating, 
He threatened her with a knife and calmly explained how he would kill her and dispose of her body. After this incident, his second wife travelled back to London without Chapman. Chapman followed her to East London, where they briefly met up before ending their relationship. In 1895, Chapman met Mary Isabella Spink, an alcoholic divorcee, who he married. Chapman beat Spink often and in 1897 poisoned her with a toxic compound similar to arsenic, which he purchased from the local chemist. After killing her, Chapman repeated this method of murder for his next two mistresses, Bessie Taylor and Maud Mars. After the latter's uh, murder, her mother suspected Chapman of killing her daughter in 1902. He was arrested and the bodies of his previous wives were exhumed to discover that they had all died from the same cause. Chapman was found guilty and hanged on April the 7th, 1903. Chapman was first identified as a suspect in the Ripper killings when he first was first arrested in 1902. Frederick Aberline reportedly said, you've got Jack the Ripper at last. All of Chapman's known murders had been a woman who he personally knew and were committed through the use of poison. For him to have killed and mutilated strange women with a knife seems outside his usual methods. And they do say that a murderer never changed his modus operandi and that's the biggest thing against Chapman. The simple fact that would he go from a poisoner to a slasher. Um, I just think that Abilene saying you've got Jack the Ripper at last kind of swung it for me, but in hindsight and thinking about all the other things, I kind of thought, well, <coughs> no, not anymore. I don't really believe it anymore. Okay, the next picture is James Maybrick. Anybody heard of him? and the famous diary of Jack the Ripper. In 1992, a document presented as James Maybrick's diary surfaced, which claimed that he was Jack the Ripper. Though the diary never mentioned Maybrick by name, it includes enough details to conclude that readers were expected to believe it was him. Furthermore, in 1993, a pocket watch made in 1847 was discovered with Jay Maybrick scratched in the inside cover along with the words, I am Jack, as well as the initials of the five Ripper victims. That's really strange that I saw this etching, I am Jack, 1888, and there's a watch turns up with I am Jack, the initials. It's quite, quite interesting. It's a bit like I am Spartacus. Yes. <laughs> uh, the diary has undergone multiple examinations, but unlike the Hitler diary and the Mussolini diary, has not yet been proven to be a fake. The world of ripperology is split on the diary and continues to cause many arguments, both for and against. The pocket watch has been verified to be of the period, and the engravings is proven to be at least a couple of decades old. Uh, I went to a Jack the Ripper conference in Liverpool, and the owner of the watch, who has since died, Albert Johnson, um, one of the, one of the uh, things about getting people to go to that conference was this watch was going to be on display. And um, at the breakfast table, I was luckily sat right next to Albert Johnson. So I said to him, uh, have you got the watch? He said, yeah, it's in my pocket. I said, let's have a look. And he wouldn't let me. I kept on and on and on. And in the end, he said, oh, for God's sake, all right, you can have a look at it. And he opened it up. And now I saw the scratches in there. It was absolutely fantastic. So I said to him, I'll give you 10 grand for it. And he said, nah not selling it. And he wouldn't, he would not budge. He absolutely was adamant that, you know, he'd been offered thousands of pounds for this watch, but, but um, 
you know, it wouldn't move. So uh, he he clearly believed that um, it was a Maybrick watch. So has anyone Yeah, very good point. Very good point. Uh, people have tried. They, they've they've actually found letters from Maybrick, and it doesn't match, or doesn't match, completely the letter, the same wording in the diary. But sometimes when you're experiencing experiencing sort of like mania, your hand, handwriting changes anyway. So every story for there's a story against, and vice versa. This person's gone up in a lot of people's estimations as actually being Jack the Ripper. There's a, a very, very good author called Paul Begg. Uh, this is his candidate. Um, if you get to buy a book, any book by Paul Begg, you know you're going to be buying on Jack the Ripper. You're going to be a buying quality. Uh, first class researcher uh, and a brilliant writer. Uh, this has been recorded tonight for a podcast. That's a point you owe me, Paul. So this is Aaron Kosminski. Malvin McMorton named Kosminski as a suspect in his 1894 memorandum, as did former Chief Inspector Donald Swanson, in handwritten notes seen in the margin of his copy of the Assistant Commissioner of Robert Anderson's memoirs. In McNaughton's memoirs, he states that there is a strong reason to believe that Kosminski is a ripper because of his great hatred of women with strong homicidal tendencies. In Anderson's 1910 memoirs, he claims that the Ripper was a low-class Polish Jew, to which Swanson added the name Kosminski in the margin of his own copy. Swanson also noted that Kosminski had been watched by police at his brother's home in Whitechapel and was later taken with his hands tied behind his back to the workhouse and later to Colony Hatch Asylum, where he died shortly after. I think Kosminski's quite, uh, quite a good choice, I think. Um, did anybody read in the national newspapers about uh, a chap that had had the presumed shawl of the Mitre Square victim DNA tested? Uh, it made a double page spread in the Daily Mail, I think. What's the guy's name? Russell Edwards. Russell Edwards, that's it, yeah. He had all his DNA done. Uh, at the time, uh, all the Ripper experts, all the Ripperologists just looked at each other completely he's got it he's solved the case he's got it but the dna was really flawed i mean uh, and um it doesn't conclusively prove that the shore you know that, that uh, kosminski was jack the ripper so but the jury's out on that one the next picture i'd like to show you is francis tumblety tumblety an irish american made a small fortune posing as an Indian herb doctor throughout the United States and Canada, and was largely perceived as a woman-hating quack. He was connected to the death of, of, of one of his patients in Boston, but managed to escape prosecution after being held for three weeks in prison. Tumblety absolutely despised all women, but claimed to possess a particular hatred for prostitutes. He had claimed to be soured on women after earlier failed marriage to a prostitute. Tumblety hosted an all-male dinner party in Washington, D.C., at which he displayed a collection of preserved female productive organs, proudly boasting that they had all come from every class of woman. Whilst in England in 1888, Tumblety was arrested in November the 7th on a charge of gross indecency. 
apparently for engaging in homosexuality, which was a criminal offence at the time. Tumblety fled to the States, sorry, Tumblety fled to France, and whilst on bail awaiting his trial, he later went back to the United States. In 1913, Tumblety was mentioned as a ripper suspect by Chief Inspector John Littlechild of the Metropolitan Police Service in a letter to a journalist and author, George R. Sims. Littlechild has suspected Tumblety due to his extreme hatred and poor prior criminal charges. There are many other suspects in the Jack the Ripper case, too many to mention, but I'm going to mention one more as being a real possibility of being, uh, well, not Jack the Ripper, but this man is... Uh, uh, a lot of those medals were actually faked medals. He liked dressing up and, and portraying the Sam as a war hero. Um, but the next picture I'm going to show you is uh, not so much a Ripper suspect as like a just a complete rogue, really. <laughs> so this is Matt the Hat McVicken. And uh, don't be fooled by that, that uh, charming grin he's got on his face. This man was an out-and-out -out thug. Originally, he played his trade as a criminal in uh, Scotland, believe it or not. Um, where he was involved in the political intrigue. Uh, imprisoned for 15 years, uh, he didn't use the time lightly. He actually learnt to play the guitar and then uh, went on the streets of Glasgow as a very good busker. In fact, uh, he was actually known around Scotland as Jock the Rapper. <laughs> but it wasn't until he actually went to the East End of London where he met up with two renowned criminals called Ronnie and Reggie Gay, <laughs> that he became a hardened criminal. But then he transgressed the Britain rule where he actually double-crossed the gay twins and he actually fled. Uh, he went on the run for many years and uh, lots of disguises, eventually uh, undertaking plastic surgery, which, as you can see with the picture, didn't actually work. <laughs> uh, but the vet was closing in on him after 15 years on the run and uh, he was actually captured in Salisbury, masquerading as a barman. <laughs> of course, that's not true. No, I made that. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier on, uh, one of the last uh, sort of like remaining landmarks, I suppose, of the Ripper case is the Ten Bells. It's a really good pub. You get an opportunity to go to Whitechapel, uh, go and a drink. It's a great pub, and you'll be in a pub where. Uh, at least one of the Ripper victims definitely drank, that was Mary Jane Kelly, the last victim. And to finish, I'd like to return to the vinyl victim, Mary Jane Kelly. Uh, we know very little about her life, but what we do know comes from her partner, Joe Barnett, who was also, um, he, he's her, her boyfriend, Barnett, you know, uh, has also become a Ripper, Ripper suspect. Uh, one thing we do know about Kelly is on the night of her murder, she was in the Ten Bowels pub, near her tiny room in Miller's Court, and late that night she was heard singing a song called A Violet from Mother's Grave. Uh, some years ago I managed to persuade the manager of the Ten Bells to let me film the song in the pub, so we're going to have a song to finish. But before we do, I'd just like to tell you a little, little more about this story, because um, this pub was going to be turned into a fast food American diner. Uh, and on the inside of the pub, on the walls, there are beautiful, there's a beautiful tile description 
of a man with a woman, uh, with a prostitute. I mean, these are Victorian tiles, they're dull blue tiles, they're absolutely gorgeous. And they were going to cover all this up. They were going to cover the whole thing up. So um, I found out that the, the landlord uh, had got his marching orders. So I said, look, um, I've got this idea. This song that Mary Kelly was singing on, on the night she died, she was heard singing it in this pub, and she was heard singing it in her tiny room on the night she died. Can we come up to the pub and... Re and shoot a video of that song. I've got the sheet music. Can we redo it in the pub and sort of like turn the pub into like a, a Victorian setting? And he said, no. No, absolutely not. Can't do it. I kept on and on and on this guy. And in the end, he said, well, you can do it under one condition. And that is, it's on a Sunday morning and you have to start really early at seven o'clock. And I said, but we've got, we've got to get a piano up from Salisbury for a start. We've got to get all the actors up. We've got to get the film crew. It's seven o'clock, they have to leave Salisbury about five. He said, well, that's it, you know, like it or lump it, that's what you've got to do. So we did it. We actually got a, a Land Rover and a trailer, we got a piano on the trailer, it was a little bit out of tune. We went up to London, we blacked all the windows out from the inside with dustbin liners. We got rid of all the, all the um, fruit machines, uh, we put candles on the tables, and we reshot the video of how we think it would have been done in 1888. So to finish, this is... Only a Violet from Mother's Grave by the Midnight Theatre Company. Just click that. What do I do? Just click it. Which? You click it. Oh, that? Okay. Yeah. Which one? The middle one? No, no. That one? Yeah.
Whitechapel Society, um, of which I now left, uh, resigned from the committee because um, we didn't see eye to eye, and uh, that's why we're starting this new club. And uh, there's some forms here if you want to be part of it. Please uh, drop down your email address and uh, we'll send you some more details. But in the meantime, thanks very much for coming and um, hope you enjoyed tonight. Thank you. Okay, so first question, well, was Mary Kelly Irish? Yep, yeah, well, yes, uh, we believe she was born in Ireland. Uh, she's the misnomer in this whole thing. Uh, we don't know that much about her. Joe Barnett, her boyfriend, is the only, the only decent. They might, they might not even be true, but um, we believe that she was born in Ireland, yeah. In view of the nature of the killings and the way the bodies were practically dissected, it seems to me we're looking for a mad medic you, you did mention a couple of suspects with a medical background, but was that a major line of inquiry? Did they sort of go after disgruntled medical students or anything like that? Or? Well, cer certainly um, a lot of the uh, police surgeons were in agreement that it would have to admit someone with anatomical knowledge. Um, when the kidney uh, came to George Les, when the kidney was sent through the post with the, with the Lusk letter, um, it was... Mm -hmm seemed to be preserved in some spirits, and that gave the indication to the police that it may have been a medical student. Um, but as I say, uh, I mean, to, to go to Mitre Square and to take someone's kidney out in the darkened area of Mitre Square, because when you read about taking a kidney out of someone's body, you know, that's one thing. It wasn't until I actually saw... Um, I saw how difficult it was. Uh, there was a chap called um, uh, Trevor Marriott. Uh, he gave a, a talk at the Do Docklands exhibition, which was a huge, great Jack River exhibition. He gave one of the talks. But what he did was he'd managed to get an aut God knows how he did it. He managed to get an aut autopsy, and he showed a series of slides in colour. Because when you see all these murders, they're always in black and white, and it's not the full effect. When you see how difficult it is to find a kidney in a body in colour. It, oh, it is. In fact, uh, there, was, there was a reporter there from the East London Advertiser who actually fainted. <laughs> she actually fainted. You know, you've got to virtually reach in right around the back of the body to get the kidney. Uh, it's not uneasy. You've got to move things out of the way. It's not easy to find it. And he did that in a darkened area as well as making all the facial mutilations with the V-marks and the, the nips and the eyelids and all the rest of it. So it's just, it's like this man was some sort of like, it's like a psychic type thing. It's, you know, it's absolutely remarkable. What's the nearest medical school to watch? Well, it was always assumed that the London Hospital, it may have been a student from the London Hospital, because the London Hospital is right, right in the heart of the River Murders. It's on the Whitechapel Road and very, very close indeed. And in fact, um, I mentioned uh, 
Sergeant Thick, that was around this area, he was born in Bower Chalk, his house was just behind the London Hospital, uh, which is one of the reasons that he was accused of being Jack the Ripper. Uh, also, Leather Apron, who was one of the prime suspects at the time, he lived just behind the London Hospital as well, which is why Sergeant Thick knew exactly where to go to his house in Plumbers Row to arrest him. Yeah, sorry. Anybody else? Yeah. Oh, uh, okay, uh, over here first. When are you playing my game? Ah, yes, Chris Asher over here. Uh, he is a bit of a Jack the Ripper aficionado. He has devised uh, a game on Jack the Ripper, which I've seen. I went round to his house because Chris also got uh, a toy museum. Uh, I went round to his house thinking that this would be like a, uh, like a Monopoly thing, quite a small board. I couldn't believe it, it took up the whole table. It's a huge, great map of all these streets in the East End of Jack the Ripper at the time. And he's actually got the figures that you move around. I haven't played it yet, but uh, apparent, apparently Jane, Chris, Ruby, and myself, and a few of the others are going to get together to play this game uh, in the near future. And I reckon it'd be a good idea to actually bring it into here. Yeah, but we need to test it out first. Oh, he wants to test it out first. He wants to test it out first just to make sure it's okay. But would you be prepared to bring it in here, Chris? And um, oh, oh yeah, we played it. Yeah, yeah. So there might be an opportunity in the future to play it in here. Is there any? There might be more than two of them working together. Yeah, well, um, in the conspiracy, and all the films say that um, it was in the films that show a Freemasonic conspiracy. Um, the coach there's a coach driven by uh, John Netley. Uh, Netley was a coach driver, and Sir William Gull is inside the coach. He then, because they're trying to silence these prostitutes, because um, it's a long, in-depth story, I'd be here all night if I actually tell it, but Sir, Sir William Gull had to silence these women according to Freemasonic ritual. So he fed the women grapes that had been drugged, got them into the coach, and then did the dissection. So the coach driver and Netley worked together. But... To go into more detail on that, it would take probably an hour or so. It is really quite involved. Everybody else? Yeah, Rob. Yep. What you said at the beginning about the um, first suspect, the first on the scene was the suspect. Lechmere, yeah. Yeah, well, that's true of today's because not surprises <coughs> now. Like Ian Huntley was interviewed on the television. Yeah, so basically, um, because Lech... No, no, I didn't see, you know, quite innocent, but he was yeah. arrested. Yeah, because, uh, because Lechmere was the... He was seen looking over the body, It's it's been suggested that he may well have been, may well have been Jack the Ripper himself. Um, this is something that Ruby knows more about than I do, because um, I've only just come onto this theory. Uh, but Ruby knows someone who is related to the family of Lechmere, and uh, apparently, um, has he written a book? Or I'm going to hand it over to you because Ruby knows more about this than I do. So just give a brief synopsis of what Lechmere, the actual story behind Lechmere. Well, um, Lechmere um, was walking to work, and he supposedly found the body uh, of. Um, Polly Nichols, which had just, just, just been uh, attacked. She, there are reports that she was even still groaning. Um, she, she was just on the point of expiring. 
there was somebody else, Paul, who was walking along the road who saw Lechmere and he describes him as standing over the body and uh, uh, they then walked on together looking for a policeman but I think that Lechmere just carried on to work and it was only when uh, the police started looking for him that he eventually went to the police and he gave his name as Cross. Now Ch uh, Cross um, had been his stepfather so uh, I think it's the only time ever that he actually put his name down on paper as Charles Cross. So that's, a, that's quite an odd thing too. Why did he tr try and sort of throw the police off the scent of who he really was uh, at the inquest? So there's quite a few people who think now that he might have been Jack the Ripper because obviously he was, he was standing next to the <laughs> expiring body. At the same time, there's no real reason if you have a look at who he was and what and his life story to think that he would be a psychopath because he was married with children. He lived to quite a, an old age, but he worked, he worked for Pickford and he did have the, and knew the East End very, very well. And he did have the opportunity at that the time in the uh, of the morning when the um, the murders happened to have gone around murdering people had he wanted to. Okay. Told you she knows quite a lot about the case, didn't I? <laughs> Was it the same fellow did all the autopsies? No, there were different uh, different people carried out uh, different autopsies and different um, in the mortuary. But you know, that's the thing about it is that a lot of them, uh, there are at least five, five different surgeons and police surgeons that carried out the autopsies, and most of them agree that um, the, the killer would have had to be had some anatomical knowledge. A doctor. Uh, oh, well, oh, I see what you mean. Um, possibly because we don't actually know who the killer was. So that's how you, you could get a kidney out. You could actually write a book based on that theory. That's the thing. I have to say that um, there are people out there, believe it or not, who are just waiting for the next book to come out because their mission in life is to, once a new book comes out, their armchair detectors or even bedroom detectors with computers in the room, and their mission in life is to prove that any book, new book that comes out can't be the Ripper because this, this, he wasn't there at that time and... Uh, you know, she didn't leave the house at this time, and you know, on it goes. So, in a one way, I suppose that's not a bad thing. But um, there's some pretty sad people. Out there, aren't there? <laughs> I didn't mention Chief Inspector. Well, he wasn't Chief Inspector Jew at the time. I didn't mention Jew because um, Jew at the time was a very young uh, policeman. Um, it is said that Jew was one of the policemen that went to Mary Kelly's room uh, when the curtain was drawn to one side for the broken window and saw the absolute hellish picture that was in that room. This woman was completely slaughtered. And I kid you not, as I've already said, if you were to see the pictures, it is not nice. But apparently Jew was a rookie cop at the time. Um, a more seasoned policeman looked for the window first and said, for God's sake, Jew, don't look. And Jew did, he looked. I've often wondered, because Mary Kelly was found dead in her bed, I've often wondered that when Jew investigated the case of Teddy Haskell in Salisbury in 1908, he saw Teddy Haskell in bed, and if all those thoughts perhaps of Mary Kelly also in the bed come flooding back to him, I don't know, it's just my own sort of like thoughts. 
Anybody else? Jake. You didn't mention any link to, because I know you obviously did a TV program about it, any link to H.H. Holmes? H.H. Holmes, yeah. Do, I, do you not believe he's a, uh, um, a suspect in any more then? I'm not of the H.H. Holmes camp. H.H. Holmes was uh, an American. Uh, he's been described as being America's worst ever serial killer. Uh, he actually devised this castle that had lots of uh, passages and uh, cellars and all the rest of it where he um, enticed women and killed them. Uh, I don't know the actual figure. Uh, it goes into hundreds, I believe. Um, there was a program made called uh, something like First American Serial Killer or something like that. Uh, and it was a descendant of H.H. H. Holmes um, featured in this program. And uh, they contacted me to be in the programme, which I did. I was in the actual series, but I only got a very small part in it. Although they filmed me for God knows how many hours. And I got about two minutes in it, which was a bit disappointing. But I don't think H.H. H. Holmes has got anything to do with Jack the Ripper. The only reason he's actually in the frame was that whilst he was carrying out all these murders in America, there is one year that is unaccounted for. They cannot find H.H. H. Holmes in America for this year, and it just happens to be 1888 when the Ripper murders were happening. So until someone finds and conclusively proves that H.H. H. Holmes was in America in 1888, people will still say, oh, he was in he was in London committing the Jack the Ripper murders. But that research what, goes what on. What years was his, did he start murdering? Uh, he started around about the mid-1880s. He went on and on and on. Anybody else? Yep. Do you know what happened to the Maybrick watch? Uh, I don't know what happened to the Maybrick watch. Um, the last I heard, because as I say, I mean, I did everything in my possible to try and buy that watch off that chap, thinking, yeah, if he sells it to me, he's after the money. He wouldn't be swayed on it. Um, Albert Johnson has since died. I think the watch remains in his family. His family may have even sold it. Thousands and thousands of pounds have been offered for it. Um, whether the family have actually sold that watch, I don't know. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they have, because only Albert, it was, you know, it was his pride and joy. So, I think he actually bought that watch in the first place, because when he bought it, it was worth a lot of money then. Yeah, this was, a, this was quite an expensive watch. I think he bought it in the fir first place to um, hand down to his grandchildren. So he probably handed it down to his grandchildren, it's whether they sold it or not. No, I don't know. He bought it. Did he, did he, sorry, did he buy it because of it? It's no, no. When Albert Johnson bought that watch, he had, according to him anyway, he had absolutely no idea about the scratches on the inside. Um, in fact, uh, when the diary of Jack Ripper came out, um, when the watch appeared not long after, the actual people that wanted to publish the diary of Jack the Ripper said, oh my God, oh no, this is the worst thing that could have happened. First you get a supposed diary, then you get a watch with scratches on it. This is the worst thing that could possibly have happened. But at least the watch, I mean, the diary itself, the unfortunate thing about the diary is it's very difficult to prove that it's a fake because it's actually written in a Victorian booklet. The first few pages have been ripped out, so who knows what was in there. But the actual paper and the diary itself, it, it's virtually impossible to prove that that's not Victorian. In fact, it is Victorian. It all hinges on the ink that it's actually, uh, that the actual forger or not forger has written. They've had numerous tests on the ink. Um, 
but they've never really conclusively proved that that ink is not from 1888 or, or earlier. So a lot of people think that it's a modern forgery. The thing about the Maybrick diary is whoever forged it was not just a ripper expert, he was a super ripper expert because there were things in there that we didn't actually know until we actually tried to start proving that the diary was a fake. So, uh, for instance, Maybrick uh, went to London and visited a prostitute. No one knew that about Maybrick until the diary came out. So whoever forged it, or supposedly forged it, would have had a, a, a real understanding of not just true crime, because the Maybrick case is a case on its own, but also an in-depth understanding of the J Jack the Ripper case. He, he would have had to be a master forger, in my opinion. Okay, well, thank you very much again. Some brilliant questions there. Thanks very much for coming, and um, as I say, um, hopefully see you at the Christmas party. Um, and I hope you enjoy tonight. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for coming. And that was Frog Moody with Jack the Ripper, A Concise History. We thank Mr Moody, as well as everyone at the Fisherton Historical Society, for making the release of this talk possible. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you'll find over 100 roundtable discussions, author interviews and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian crime. And if you have any comments or questions about our podcasts, feel free to find us on the Casebook message boards or on Twitter and Facebook by searching for RipperCast. <laughs>